This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Aparna Gopalan, and today I'm going to be talking to Professor Annie McClanahan, author of the book Dead Pledges, Debt, Crisis, and 21st Century Culture, which came out with Stanford University Press in 2016. When teaching a public course called The Age of Debt this winter break, I had the strange realization that one of the most successful readings in that course, the one which most clearly explained the 2008 financial crisis, and the financialized economy since the 1980s, was written by an English professor. It was Dead Pledges. The book is a masterful exploration of the cultural politics of the financial crisis and a powerful mediation on how to make sense of an era of unrepayable debts. As a review in the LA Review of Books notes, McClanahan has resurrected and repurposed the rich tradition of Marxist literary criticism, which brought us Raymond Williams, analyzing post-crisis literature photography, and cinema as cultural texts registering a new crisis subjectivity in the wake of the mortgage meltdown's shattering revelations. Dead Pledges is a must-read. For whom? Well, for anyone living in the 21st century. Anyone concerned about insurmountable debts? Anyone thinking of how culture and the economy transact each other? And anyone striving for a radical politics fit for the mortgage times in which we live? I had the pleasure of speaking with Professor Annie McClanahan just a few minutes earlier. Here is my interview. I have with me today Professor Annie McClanahan, author of Dead Pledges. Welcome to the program. Thank you. So I, I loved your book. Um, as we spoke about before, I you know have assigned it in classes. And it's always been very surprising to me that a book about the financial crisis and about its cultural representations is coming from someone who is um, has their PhD in literature and in English. So um, how did you come to have this really interesting intellectual trajectory between literature and studying debt and finance? Yeah, so um, as a as an undergraduate student, I was not the kind of student who um, took grad school as a given trajectory. Um, and in fact, I wasn't interested particularly in the academic side of my English degree at all as a student until the very last semester that I was um, getting my BA in English. I took a class on Marxist theory and 
it sort of offered me for the first time the sense that the study of literature and culture could be political. Um, I was interested in politics at the time. I was interested in the sort of nascent anti-globalization movement. Um, and those were sort of where my commitments were. And that class just sort of made me realize that that those commitments were not necessarily distinct or fully distinct from being interested in studying literature and culture. Um, so when I went to grad school, I really focused on um, Marxist theory, and in particular, what had what always um, was the most compelling to me about Marxist theory was was Marxist crisis theory, um, which is really the Marx's attempt to describe the way that the internal contradictions of capitalism lead inevitably to its exhaustion or collapse. And uh, even more particularly, what I was interested in was um, the relationship of that theory to a theory of, of finance and financialization. Um, so in graduate school, I really sort of um, focused my interests on financialization. So this was in starting in 2000. One two thousand two, um, and I I started in the early two thousands um, working on a dissertation project about speculation um, as uh, a f- both as a form of investment and a f- and a v- and a form that financial temporality takes, but also as something that um, that fiction does, that literature does, in the sense that it sort of looks forward to possible futures. Um, so I started writing about that and I was writing about derivatives and um, I think everybody around me thought that I was completely crazy. Um, I don't think that this seemed like a um, a very viable um, English literature dissertation, um, but interestingly, um, uh, right towards the end of the process of writing the dissertation, um, the financial crisis happened and all of a sudden it became very obvious why we should care about things like derivatives. Um, so the sort of um, weird thing about it was that I was going on the job market in a moment where my project suddenly made sense and seemed relevant to people. But of course, the very thing that had made my project seem relevant was the collapse of the economy, which also meant the collapse of the job market. So it was a bit of a weird time to be working on a project on um, on financial crisis. Um <laughs> even though it was also sort of a, it was a good time, but it was also a very strange time. Um, so that's sort of the trajectory of my work. I mean, I think that one thing that people don't always necessarily know is that actually there's a long tradition of, um, people writing about literature and the economy and particularly literature in the financial economy or the credit economy. Um, but that work tends to be, um, in earlier periods, like sort of particularly 18th and 19th century. So, as a grad student, most of the people that I worked with were actually 18th and 19th centuries. Um, and like, for instance, um, scholars have written about the fact that um, the sort of nascent forms of uh, a credit economy that you get, which would be things like paper money, which is, of course, dependent on um, state credit or IOUs, um, that those forms of sort of pretend money or fictional money emerge at almost exactly the same time as the realist novel does. And that they both are seen as these kinds of paper fictions where you kind of have to suspend your disbelief that you have to grant them a certain kind of credulity uh, term that's, of course, related both to realism and to credit. Um, And that those two things that that, that they seem to have something in common and that that, for instance, the earliest forms of credit reporting rely on uh, narrative form rather than we take for granted today that credit reporting is done with numbers. But it wasn't always it was done with narrative and that 
that the realist novel in a way trains us in how to read the credibility of other people by training us how to read for characters in novels. Um, so there is a lot of work on literature and the economy in earlier periods. The reason that there that there was slightly less on late 20th century, early 21st century is partly just because the economy is so complicated. Um, so that, <clears throat> you know, the, the, the faculty that I worked with as a grad student that are working on, say, the 18th century, they could read Adam Smith and David Ricardo and Karl Marx. They could read The Economist of that period pretty easily um, without a background in um, calculus. Um, it's a lot harder to read um, either the contemporary economy or contemporary economics. And so I think that's one reason why um, there is slightly less work in English in the um, late 20th century economy, though that's increasingly not the case anymore either. I mean, there's been a sort of efflorescence of that work in the last 10 years that that um, has sort of been really powerful to see and be a part of in some ways. Great, thank you. Um, and then something that's also really important in order to understand your book and situated is to understand the larger, you know, credit economy in which we live and how it's a very historically specific moment. Um, in the book, for instance, you write, and I love, I love this line, the way you kind of put these things together, you write, um, credit is the economic form of boom time. It is a temporal fix when it is still possible to fix things. But debt as a figure for credit that is unpaid defaulted, foreclosed, bankrupted, written off, unredeemed, is the economic form of crisis of a period in which no one can pay. Um, and I thought there was such a such an important reversal to make to see the world as not one in which um, it's awash with credit, which, you know, it is in some very obvious way, but something that's awash in debt. Um, so could you just speak a little bit about that reversal and how important um, that is in this specific historical juncture and for understanding the kinds of arguments you make in the book. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that sort of started happening it, in, in my thinking was that, um, at, particularly after 2008, um, well, so, okay, so um, the dissertation that I wrote is was about speculation. It was about that moment of temporal fix. It was about that moment of deferring forward, perpetually deferring forward the moment of the realization of a value um, to a sort of speculative future. And um, after I finished the dissertation, I was really not very satisfied with it. Um, it felt the relationship between the cultural texts and the economic context felt too mediated. It felt too complicated. I felt like I still couldn't get a handle on it. And meantime, I was becoming um, particularly interested, not just in financialization in general, but in securitization in particular and securitization of credit in an extra particular um, and and also in the the way that that connected this vast opaque financial economy to people's everyday lives um, I was also doing a lot of organizing at the time um, right in the last couple of years that I was in grad school about um, tuition increases in the UC system and I was really starting to think about student debt because I was realizing that a lot of students were not um, we're not necessarily protesting about tuition increases in the way that they would have maybe 10 years before, precisely because they were deferring the moment of payment. So they would actually say when we would do these teach-ins, they would say, it doesn't seem real because I don't have to pay it now. Mm. Um, and I was also having a lot of my students in a lot of my students in 2007, 2008 were telling me things like, um, I'm going to miss class this week because I have to go home and help my parents um, who are being evicted from their house. I had a lot of students who lived in the, I was at Berkeley and I had a lot of students who lived in the California Central Valley, which was one of the sort of hotspots, early hotspots for the foreclosure crisis. 
And I was really seeing that um, impact my students. So I started getting interested in this kind of credit debt relationship. And I also started realizing that as that scholarship I was just describing about um, credit and the realist novel in the 18th and 19th century, a lot of that scholarship was produced um, around the 90s to early 2000s. And it really does focus on credit. And it really does um, see credit as this relationship of credibility, of trust. It sees it as a form of kind of salutary social connection. And I think that that's right. But I also began to suspect that there was something symptomatic about the fact that all that work on credit and the extension of trust and the and the, the forms of social connection that it produced, that there was not a coincidence that that work was being done in the same period that the U.S. economy itself was increasingly reliant on credit as this form of sort of um, deferring the, the the deferring the problem of wage stagnation and rising costs of reproduction. So um, a way to sort of compensate temporarily for the fact that wages had been stagnant and even in some sectors of the population declining since approximately the late 1970s, while the price of goods like housing and healthcare in particular had just been skyrocketing. Um, and that credit credit kind of steps in to fill that gap, um, but that what was starting to happen in 2008 was that it was no longer able to sort of perpetually defer the moment of its payment and that people actually weren't able to pay the mortgages on their on these um, balloon loans and these loans that were um, sort of delayed the higher interest for the later years of the loan, that when people weren't able to pay those, um, that these securitized instruments that everybody had thought were sort of so complicated that they could never fail, these securitized instruments were starting to, to fail all over the place. And so I sort of got interested in what it would mean to sort of use that scholarship that was written in that period of boom time about the credit economies of the past and think about what it might mean to think about the credit economy of the present and think of it from the perspective of debt, not just of credit, um, and think of it from the perspective of the failure to repay, to think of it from the perspective of the crash of the value um, and how that might open up a space both for a critique of credit and debt and to understand the particular forms of um, crisis and collapse that seem to be happening in 2008 or so. Um, so that's kind of how the project sort of uses that, tries to use that work, but also is a little bit sort of critical or skeptical of the sort of politics that seem to be embedded in the claims that that credit relationships are relationships of trust. Hmm. And is that also why the book is called Dead Pledges? Like, could you explain a little bit the significance of, you know, unearthing this term mortgage and then looking at um, its literal meaning and what that kind of what kind of window that allows us into thinking about these issues. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, so partly it was about it was it was about exactly that. It was about looking at the so the the the, the short answer is is that the term mortgage comes from this phrase mortgage, which means dead pledge. And if you look back in um, the sort of legal writing um, going all the way back, I mean, a number of centuries, uh, it's not really all that clear why it's called that exactly. But the closest guess that people seem to have is that it has to do with the idea that the property, the mortgaged property is um, dead to the person that holds the mortgage if the if they fail to pay the mortgage and dead to the person who loaned the money once the mortgage is paid. So it's the sense that this property has this kind of um, dual fatality embedded in it, or, or, um, I I mean, the the metaphor I use in the book is that it has this sort of zombie quality. Um, and of course, 
zombie, that language of the zombie comes back up again and again um, during the financial crisis to describe um, uh, zombie mortgages and zombie banks, these kinds of um, these uh, forms of value or, or assets that ought to be um, valueless, but that seem to sort of keep stumbling along, um, even in the state of bankruptcy. So part of the, the idea of sort of focusing on this, the origins of this term was to also say, yes, some of this stuff becomes very obvious in 2008. Some of it kind of rises to the surface um, and becomes kind of unavoidable. But in fact, if we look at the long history of credit and debt, we can always find this sense um, a kind of submerged debt theory, a theory of debtors and from debtors that has always recognized that credit is not a socially salutary form. So while it's true that, for instance, um, uh, state money, fiat money, paper money depends on a certain degree of trust in the state, one of the ways that that trust has always been secured is under pain of death. So that um, early, the, the, the moment that, that um, paper money gets sort of um, becomes increasingly common in the, in, a, in, a, in the market system is also the moment that the state starts to um, penalize counterfeiting um, with uh, capital punishment. So um, that the state has always relied on something slightly more than just our sort of faith in its, um, in its good credit, but also has been willing to, um, to, to put violence behind that trust and, um, and, and to punish accordingly. So, so that there's this kind of long history that suggests that we've always, that when you're a person who has experienced debt or when you're on the debt side of the equation, that you've always been very aware that, that claim that it's about trust was basically bankrupt. Um, and, and I think part of what I wanted to do was try to sort of reformulate this longer history from that perspective by looking particularly at the contemporary period for what it might tell us about that longer history. Hmm. Great. Um, and the other thing that, uh, or I guess the central thing that I saw coming through in the book, which you already mentioned, um, is your attention to the connection between the material and the cultural. Um, and you you say in the book that um, debt is material, as you mentioned, it is backed by violence. So it's not enough to see it as a narrative form, but that doesn't mean that thoughts and feelings, you say, must be disqualified or rendered irrelevant um, because they are always connected with the economic and the material and the universal. So this I see as a huge methodological invention, uh, intervention that you're making um, in studies of both culture and of economics uh, that I find you know really worth sketching out through talking about your chapters. So um, for instance, the first chapter of your book shows that um, there's this unlikely allyship um, that we can see between behavioral economists and um, humanists, artists and writers, um, because both seem to be from very different points of view, but thinking of the economy as a cumulative expression of individual wills and desires. Um, and both seem to be in some ways conforming to Thatcher's maxim, you know, there's no such thing as society. Um so could you talk a bit more about this particular example of, um, you know, the link between like the culture side of things and the economy side of things, how they both seem to be converging on a narrative, and then also on how the realist novel sometimes is able to break through this individualism and offer a more structural view? Yeah. So one of the things, I mean, I was saying earlier that I had been dissatisfied with my dissertations, incredibly, I thought sort of tortured and complicated sense of the relationship between um, 
cultural texts and their and their economic context. And one of the things that happened in 2008 was that I felt like suddenly my whole sort of intellectual project had gotten much easier because between 2008 and 2011 or so, there were all of these um, texts that were produced from novels to horror films that were quite explicitly about this economic crisis. And so it seemed to me that rather than trying to sort of create some incredibly complicated argument about the way that things that didn't seem to be about the economy were actually secretly about the economy that I could take, I could just take the things that were actually about it um, and look at the way that they were reformulating, like reimagining, questioning, in some cases, reproducing the kinds of claims that were part of mainstream economic discourse in the same period. Um, And also in a sense, of course, like that, the idea that the, that economic that the economic realities had suddenly become visible in this other way was also part of the sort of methodological claims of the project. Um, So um, with the realist novel, of course, like the, the realist novel has always sort of taken pride of place among scholars committed to thinking about the way that um, that cultural texts and specifically literary texts might um, reckon with economic transformations and changes Um, in part because realist novels, um, as their name suggests, tend to describe pretty well um, the sort of cultural context around them. And um, so I I just noticed that between 2009 and, I mean, really in about a single year, maybe 18 months around 2010, um, there were all of these realist novels about the credit crisis. Um, And they all had, they were all remarkably similar. They were all about um, families. They were all very much in the genre of domestic realism. Um, and some of them were about financial traders and some of them were about just sort of regular, um, middle or upper middle class families, um, that were in debt. And I, and I, and they were all sort of interested in this idea that the cause of the crisis was some kind of overweening greed or overconsumption or um, kind of fundamental irrationality, um, whether that was on the part of individual economic investors in the novels that were about that side of things, or um, in the novels that were about homeowners and people in debt, this idea that people were getting in debt because they were spending too much, because they weren't looking to the future, because they had their priorities in the wrong place, because they were, as I said, in some way irrational. And um, I find those, I mean, I find both of those very dissatisfying answers to the question of why what happened happened. I think they're, I mean, I think they're not just dissatisfying. I think they're actually wrong. Um, And I also, but I also was struck by the fact that those, that, that, that those accounts offered by novels really resonated with um, a kind of um, sort of mainstream vernacular economics that was really dominating the discourse in that same period um, which was the the language of behavioral economics, and that whether it's um, you know somebody like um, Alan Greenspan or um, Robert Schiller, who is the person who famously takes Greenspan's phrase "irrational exuberance" and uses it to describe what's happening in the financial economy in the early 21st century, whether it's those kinds of thinkers or whether it's journalists, um, and in this case also novelists, that there's this sense that we can account for what happened by talking about the individual motivations of consumers or, or investors. And I, and I just was struck by the fact that the novels were reproducing that same language. And, um, and in a way it shouldn't be surprising because that is in fact, like what realist novels do is that the way that they do that sort of mimetic work of describing the economy is that they explain it by explaining 
um, the stories of individuals. That's what makes them interesting. And it's what makes them sort of more compelling as narratives than, uh, you know, a work of political economy, for instance. Um, but I was just sort of felt really dissatisfied by the kinds of answers that they were largely giving. And so I, I tried to think about in that chapter, I tried to think about, um, how they, how they sort of um, tell us something about this larger discourse of behavioral economics and what it was doing in, in the period, what, what kind of answers it was giving, and, and how the novels are basically offering a very similar set of answers, and then also how their sort of failures to describe the larger systems might themselves reveal something to us about those larger systems, what kind of fantasies of um, individual control they seem to offer. So for instance, they seem to suggest that were we to have smart enough legislators, were we to have smart enough regulators to step in and um, teach us the kinds of sort of um, rationality and, um, I don't know, sort of um, austerity, let's say, um, that we need, whether that's on the level of how much an individual family is spending or whether it's um, how a how a whole nation of consumers is spending. Um, that if the if only we could have those kinds of sort of smart, sophisticated, technocratic legislators, that we could fix the problem. Um, and I think that the fact that the novels participated in that fantasy is interesting. I mean, it's I think it's wrong, but I also just think it's interesting. Um, and so part of what the project is kind of trying to do is say look, this genre, the realist novel that we've always sort of counted on to be able, and I think legitimately counted on to be able to give us some kind of particularly compelling account of the relationship between a given individual and a much larger, much larger economic and historical structure, that it's not really working in this moment. And that maybe, maybe we need to turn to other kinds of forms, Um, particularly if we take the, if we take as true the idea that the realist novel is the genre of credit and credibility, then it's possible that we need other kinds of forms that might be the genres of debt um, in order to get us to an understanding of what it means when that credibility collapses. Right. Um, Yeah, I was thinking while you were explaining uh, uh, the first chapter about how, in a way, the book really shows, you know, ideology in action. It's like this thing that, like, people theorize about and look at the past and try to find the ways in which, you know, a dominant paradigm or narrative um, diffuses down to like everyday people's consciousness. And it doesn't just happen because, you know, we saw Alan Greenspan say something on TV and so we all believed it. It's not this kind of a top down, like, um, you know, yeah, it's it's not like this hard sale that's made. It's like something that diffuses even in things that one might think is recreational and cultural consumption and things that we might even see as forming our identities as humans, you know, books, novels, stories. Um, And then it kind of down to that level, um, these stories um, seep down and then like into how we think about the world. But yet there's, you know, elements of um, critical consciousness, which also seem to accidentally emerge and, um, like as you show in the post-crisis realist novels, um, you know, kind of counter the individualism by showing that actually these individuals are acting under these constraints of making money. And it seems like it's money itself, which is um, insisting upon multiplying itself. Um, yeah, I really I really love that chapter. I think it, it does such a good job in showing the connection between culture and economy. Um, but another way in which you do it in later chapters is by looking at um, the whole cri- f- 
foreclosure crisis um, and looking at foreclosure photography um, to basically show us how that uh, genre of photography is itself making arguments about how we should understand the post-crisis economy and um, um, yeah, how we can rethink how we understand the role of credit and debt in the world today. So what is the um, kind of takeaway from looking at foreclosure photography and how can we, yeah, how does it help us understand the connection between um, the cultural and the economic? Yeah. So um, one of the things that I was also struck by as I was reading a lot of journalism about the crisis, a lot of journalistic accounts is how frequently, I mean, it just became a total cliche that if you were going to read a piece that was about um, really any aspect of the crisis from actual foreclosures all the way up to um, to questions that pertained more to the sort of the, the credit default swaps and the collateralized debt obligations and the kind of complex economic instruments that were based on those houses, um, that they would always be illustrated by a photograph of a foreclosed or abandoned or boarded up home. Um, mm-hmm. And so I got really interested in what work those photographs of homes were doing and so um, for the chapter, I sort of, um, I, I look at this fairly wide range of photography that was used to illustrate the financial crisis. Um, some of them are um, very sort of conventional journalistic, photojournalistic um, uh, photo essays from venues like the AP and Time. Um, a number of photographers did things like follow um, follow a series of uh, evictions in a, in a particular um, area uh, there's a photographer who um, went in with the sheriff's department in his town, and um, while they processed evictions, most of those were evictions where the families had already left, but the sheriff's department has to go in through the house and make sure that there's nobody left in it. Um, those are really interesting because they immediately suggest, again, this sense of the violence that underwrites credit and debt relationships, which is to say that um, why should it be that a sheriff's department does the job essentially of a bank in assuring that people have left an abandoned property? Um, and I think that a lot of the photographers, um, in, in the case of both those images and the images of evictions, one of the things that the photographers were really interested in are the questions of um, sort of privacy and invasion um, that are, seem to be part of that that moment of the process of eviction. So what happens when the interior of the home, um, the spaces that we think of as private, um, the kinds of belongings that we have in our home, when it essentially gets turned inside out, where it gets exposed um, to public view, to the elements, um, and to this kind of um, uncomfortable publicness. What happens to our sense of domestic privacy? Um, I mean, so much of American, um, the entire sort of sense of American um sort of self-awareness or American self-definition has to do with that belief in the sort of sanctity of domestic private property, both in the, in its, in its qualities as property and in its qualities as domestic space. And it seemed to me sort of interesting that these scenes of foreclosure and eviction were both kind of exposing that ideology and also, um, uh, sort of suggesting its limits that the limit of the belief in domestic privacy that the limit case of that is when the property relation falls apart. Um, so I was really interested in those kinds of um, photojournalistic accounts. And um, I was also interested um, on the sort of other end, there's uh, art photographers who have done similar kinds of work um, looking at the interiors of 
homes where they're basically empty spaces. And so there's art photographers that would do things like um, take photographs of just of a carpet where all you could see in this old carpet of an abandoned house was a sort of impression of the furniture that had been sitting on it before the house was um, cleaned out and abandoned. And I got the thing that was that's that was interesting to me about those images was um, I sort of read them through um, Freud's idea of the uncanny, um, which is a kind of psychoanalytic concept that comes is part of what he talks about is where we get these sort of feelings of horror or fear or disgust. Um, and for Freud, the uncanny that word comes from unheimlich, the German unheimlich or unhomely. And so I was interested in what happens when we make homes into these kinds of unhomely spaces. Um, largely, I suggest that the, the primary way that happens is by making homes property. So that the moment that we say that your domestic space is a, um, is a, is a property, that the moment that we say it's a commodity and that you only have the right to domestic space or to domestic privacy so long as you're able to pay, to pay rent or to pay a mortgage, um, that we always that we always already make the home unhomely um, when we when we subject it to that kind of property relation, and I think that these images of these abandoned homes were sort of doing that by showing us these homes where all of the sort of sentimental objects of sentimental value, all of the objects of economic value, had been removed, and all there was left were these sort of ghostly traces, these kind of impressions on the carpet or on the walls of the the presence of those objects, and then sort of the end of the chapter, I turned to a kind of a third genre of photography, which isn't really about houses at all. Um, but it was images of, um, of Detroit. And one of the interesting things that happens in um, these kind of photojournalistic um, attempts to represent the crisis is that images, the other, the other kind of image that became very common and even cliched um, as a sort of um, visual representation of, of economic journalism was these images of like abandoned Detroit factories. And a lot of scholars have been very critical of that and said, look, the crisis that happened in Detroit is a longer crisis and it's a distinct crisis and it's not a very apt um, historical metaphor for what, um, for what was happening in 2008. And I think that that's true in one sense. Um, I mean, the crisis in Detroit is a longer crisis. It has to do with deindustrialization and and it has to do with what happens to those sort of Rust Belt areas after factories leave. Um, but I also think so in that sense, it's not, it's not exactly about what happened in 2007, 2008. But I also think that and the argument that I make is that that actually that those images as deployed as representations of 2008 actually suggest the continuities in this longer history, which is that actually what happens in the 21st century has everything to do with what began to happen in the 1970s with deindustrialization, which is that the entire United States economy and global economy to a large extent shifts from um, industrial production to financialization. And that one consequence of that is the wage stagnation that I described before. So consumers need, um, consumers aren't earning the same level of wages that they were. And so they come to rely more and more heavily on, um, on debt, on, on credit being offered by credit cards and mortgages, uh, car payments, student loans, et cetera. Um, so that, that's one consequence and that um, capital needs new places to invest because it's not able to get the same profits that it was from manufacturing. And so it looks for new places to invest and where it goes is financial markets. And so even though those images of Detroit sort of don't capture what was happening specifically in 2008, 
I kind of argue that what they actually do is precisely give us a, an opening into that longer history where um, the crisis of deindustrialization that happens in the 70s actually is incredibly linked to what starts to happen in the 21st century with um, the consumer credit economy. That's really remarkable that um, this genre of photography is able to, you know, create this historical connection, which scholarly works and, um, you know, academic debates um, write about as well. So it's, again, like another example of a kind of critical, in this case, critical popular um, narrative, which might be um, just under the surface, maybe. Um, You also... Um, just as you know, you read this photography as uh, possessing this kind of profound critique of the commodification of one's home. Um, you also see something of this of a similar sort in horror films, um, post-crisis horror films, um, and how they refuse to view the foreclosure crisis as rational or natural or objective, and instead view it as something horrifying um, and as something kind of profoundly disturbing. Um, so do you think that those horror films also participate in an incipient critique? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, one of the things that like became interesting to me um, it, right after the crisis is, I mean, it's, it's related to what you were just saying, which is that, um, you know, uh, there's a tradition of Marxist scholarship that wants to say that economic, um, that economic systems happen behind our backs, that they happen under a kind of, um, a kind of veil of illusion that we aren't aware of, of what's going on and that that maybe even intensifies in the sort of contemporary or postmodern period. Um, And I think that that's true, but I also think, um, I think part of what I'm trying to say is like that maybe um, people who are the victims of the system are and have been a lot smarter about it than we might have assumed. Um, And that one of the ways that that kind of popular intelligence or popular insight gets registered is through precisely popular genres like horror film. So in fact, the very first, um, the very first texts to respond to the crisis, um, were not realist novels, um, or, or novels of any kind, they were precisely horror films. So, um, that was sort of the very first place that I found, um, uh, uh, a genre responding in fairly explicit ways, um, to what was happening, um, in 2007, 2008, um, so that was sort of where the project actually began. It's the last chapter of the book, but it was also the sort of the first chapter that I, the first work that I wrote about it. And what was interesting to me is that, um, is that horror films have typically been understood to be sort of, I mean, they've always been understood to be deeply interested in the economic, but they've, um, typically been understood to do so in this very kind of allegorical way, um, where the economic is coded, economic anxieties are coded through, um, vampires or zombies or other kind of figures of horror. Um, and that, um, that we can read, read, uh, the economic undercurrents through horror texts, but that they're not explicit. But one of the things that made me really interested in, in horror films after the crisis is that they were actually like remarkably explicit. So you would have horror films that would be using phrases like credit default swap or dealing with the sort of nuances, referencing the nuances of, Um, mortgage contracts uh, in ways that struck me as um, strange for the genre, but also really very intentional on the part of the, um, the directors and writers of those films. Um, So a film like, for instance, Sam Raimi's Drag Me to Hell, which is 2009. It's definitely, as far as I can tell, the first horror film to deal with the crisis. And it it does so um, pretty quickly because it's, yeah, 2009. Um, 
uh, the main character is a mortgage banker and she's cursed to be dragged to hell after three days because she denies um, an old woman who turns out to be a sort of witch figure. She denies her an extension on her mortgage. Um, so it's not really coded at all. It's pretty explicitly <laughs> about um, what happens about this kind of sense of the relationship between um, violence, eviction, and debt. Um and in particular, one of the things that I became really interested in writing that chapter is like thinking about the relationship between um, paying back as a, the logic of credit. And that's sort of that sense of credibility and trust and sort of social connection that we have a certain kind of responsibility or socially salutary obligation that is um, structured and rendered through the credit arrangement. The relationship between that version of paying back and another version, which we might call payback, which would be revenge. And so thinking about the way that, um, th- that, again, to sort of flip the script on the sort of um, from credit, the credit perspective to the debt perspective, and to think about what it might look like for debtors to take their revenge on creditors and the way that these horror films were very explicitly about that. So um, I've already explained how that happens in the Sam Raimi. There's also a number of other horror films um, that imagine the an eviction happens and then new um, people move into the house and the people that were evicted then come back and take their revenge on the new owners. And there too, we can see like really interesting connections to the longer history of horror film and particularly horror film about domestic space, because um, horror film about, about space has always been really interested in the idea that, um, that the past haunts the present um, through land and through houses. So if you think about a movie like, um, Pet Cemetery or Poltergeist or um, any number of the movies that are about the ways that um, sort of ancient Indian burial grounds or um, or uh, the killing of witches or slavery or um, any of the kinds of historical violence that have to do with land and with land theft and with dispossession might continue to haunt the present in the in the people that live in the houses built on that land. And then I think what these what these more contemporary films do is they kind of update that sense that horror and the Gothic have always had about the sort of possession of dispossessed land that they kind of update that for the present to think about how that might get rendered in the context of a, of a foreclosure crisis where not only are people losing their homes because they can't pay their mortgages, but also other people are able to capitalize on that loss by um, taking control of the real estate um, by profiting off of it. Um, you know, taking advantage of depressed prices to sort of snap up property and the way that that might create these relationships um, of, of payback on the part of the debtors. Um, and, and then again, to think about the ways that, that these horror films are, are again, like quite explicit. Um, so um, there's another one where the question of um, realtor disclosure comes up as a major plot point. Like what is it about a house that a realtor has to disclose. Um, and I mean, I did a little history on real estate law and it turns out that there's this idea of what's called stigmatized property in real estate law. And that what stigmatized property means is that there are certain things that a realtor has to disclose. Um, it has to disclose if a house was the scene of a major crime. It has to disclose if a violent death took place there. Um, but it also has to disclose if there's a rumor that the house is haunted 
And it has to disclose if there were, um, if people that were previously living in the house might have been subject to intense forms of debt collection, because there is an anxiety that if you buy a house where um, a bunch of debt collection agencies are after the people that used to live there, that sometimes they'll just continue to bother the same house, even if the people that they're after have left. And so I was just sort of interested in like, what would it mean for a, for a horror film, a sort of schlocky you know, in many cases, these were sort of B-grade horror films. Um, what would it mean for a horror film to be partly about these sort of details of realtor disclosure um, in ways that, again, were pretty explicit and I think pretty intentional? Um, and how might it be that that, again, that, that sort of popular genre kind of captures and represents a kind of popular consciousness about these things that is not this kind of um, deluded or mystified or ideological sort of faith in the rationality of these systems, but it's actually like a pretty kind of canny awareness of what it means to be in debt or to be foreclosed upon in the 21st century. Yeah, great. Um, And if anyone was still unconvinced that, you know, there's a direct line between narratives and economic reality, um, the coda of the book just kind of is for them. Um, I, I love that. I love that part of the book. I read that first, actually. Um, in in the coda, you basically describe how um, protest and kinds of forms of mobilization um, derive from, which derive from, you know, understanding the present as a present of debt are very different than uh, forms of mobilization, which would derive from understanding it either as credit or just as the logic of capitalism um, or as kind of something that has existed for a long time. So to bring this narrative shift into view actually opens up new strategies of um, opposing it, opposing the present capitalist world order. And you um, show some of them uh, which have actually already been taking place, um, which take the form of sabotage. Um, and you basically um, say that this is happening because our relationship to capitalism is no longer governed by the workplace and by production. And so um, resistance also cannot be governed by the workplace and by production. So could you speak a bit about, you know, what are the kinds of sabotage that you discuss in the chapter and um, what other kinds of possibilities are present once we start to flip the script and see a world of debt? Yeah, so um, I sort of talk about sabotage in two contexts that, again, I mean, as you, exactly as you said, that are about um, what would it mean to understand political mobilization, not through... Um, something like say unions and strikes and workplace actions important though I think those still are um what would it mean to understand it through these other kinds of economic relationships so one would be um anti-eviction and anti-foreclosure activism so I talk about um on the one hand people who when they when they left their homes um when they were evicted from their homes or decided to hand their homes back to the bank um instead of just letting the bank seize the asset and profit off of it, they actually did things like um, rip out all the pipes in the house or, um, you know, sort of steal everything that was potentially, or not steal. I mean, I think take back everything of value from the house that, um, that they could, that's, you're not technically allowed to do that. Um, Or they would do things like just destroy the house just for, just to sort of um, render the asset valueless. So people did things like um, stuff the walls full of dead fish or, um, or, um, 
pour concrete down the all the all the pipes um, so that the house of again was not of any value to the bank that was um, that was seizing the asset. Um, or they would do things like actually um, prevent the bank from evicting people. So have a lot of people show up and kind of occupy the space. And in many cases, in, in particularly in the Bay Area in Oakland, that was successful. They were people in these communities were able to successfully force banks to renegotiate with homeowners so that they wouldn't be evicted. Um, so I think that's one form of sabotage that I'm interested in. And the other sort of way that that, that the CODA um, goes is towards thinking about student debt. Um, so students often um, and are, um, workers, um, but they're also, um, their economic lives are also conditioned by this other kind of non-work arrangement, which is student debt. And so one of the things I talk about in the end of the book is, um, sort of offer a little bit of a history of student debt and, um, how quickly it's changed and how it changes students' lives and students' relationship to their education. And then I also talk about my experience talking to students about debt. So, um, one of the things that I often do when I talk to students about that is I sort of open by saying like, okay, I'm going to confess something to you. I'm going to confess to you that I have um, $90,000 in student debt. And then we're going to talk about what it means for me to call that a confession and what it means. Um, you know, does it make you uncomfortable to know how much debt I have? Um, and the reason that I sort of started doing it that way was because again, that there's this sense that, in the, in the sort of discourse about this, that debt is shameful, that we're embarrassed by it, um, that it's a kind of private thing. And I mean, I think that that's partially true, but I also became really interested in the fact that I felt like increasingly my students did not see it that way. Um, and that in fact, I mean, this kind of gets back a, a, a bit to what I was talking about in the context of the first chapter that like they did not see their debt or their parents' debt as, um, as based on either some kind of like um, excessive consumption or greed, nor did they see it as like a sort of um, ideological confusion about um, a kind of like um, optimism about the future where they assumed like, of course, they're going to be making so much money that the student debt doesn't matter. It was neither of those two things. It was simply that they couldn't survive otherwise. They couldn't go to college Mm -hmm. otherwise without taking out loans. Their parents couldn't survive without having immense amounts of mortgage debt, like literally couldn't. And so there kind of wasn't a choice. And so I was really interested in the way that that awareness that that debt is not a choice, that it doesn't represent some kind of um, positive sense of investing in your own future, nor a kind of um, carelessness, but that in fact, it was simply a necessity. And the way that that sense of debt as a necessity might change the sense in which we think of it as shameful or guilty or private, um, and might give us a kind of new understanding of it. And I really did feel, I really do feel um, like I could see that in my students in their relationship to, um, to their own debt, to their parents' debt, um, in their sense of what that debt meant for their own futures and their sense of um, whether they were likely to ever pay it back. Um, they, they mostly thought that they weren't likely to ever pay it back. Um, and again, I think, I think far from being sort of ideologically mystified that they were actually like quite clear-eyed about the whole thing. I think they really understood um, the system for what it was uh, in ways that I don't think even um, kind of academics always do. Um, So I found that both, I mean, it's sort of, it's, it's depressing in the sense that, that they continue to have more and more debt, but it was, it was at least, there was at least some sort of hope for me and the idea that they just had such a clear awareness of the situation. 
Right. It's as you say that they are the products of a capitalist totality, but they're also maybe the subjects most capable of reckoning with it. Yeah. Again, I'm just I just love quoting your book back to you. <laughs> Uh, but it's so well said, and it's something that one hopes is true, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, it's, it's interesting. Like, I, I talk to them, and I sort of say when I do teach-ins about debt, I sort of one of the first things I say is like, you know, um, how many of you, except for those of you whose parents might be doctors or lawyers, how many of you ever heard your parents talking about student debt? And it's almost none in most cases. Mm. And then I say, um, how many of you assume that you will be um, still paying your student debt off? Um, long past the time that you have kids and it's basically all of them. And so, you know, one of the things I say is like, this is a generational change. It's a, it's an absolutely immense generational change and it's happened incredibly fast. I mean, of all the kinds of debt, of all the changes in terms of mortgage debt and credit card debt, I, I actually think in sort of quantitative and qualitative terms that um, nothing is as um, has been as fast as an, and as extreme as the increase in student debt. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why it's become such a, a, a immensely sort of discussed political issue and continues to mm. be um, an immensely discussed political issue. Um, and I think it is the I think it is for many of them the the issue of their moment and the issue that defines their generation. Um, and I think I think um, it's uh, again yeah as worrying as it is to think about the uh, amount of debt that they have, it is at least um, reassuring to know that I do think that they have a fundamentally different relationship to it. Right. And that, that they're not laboring under some kind of false consciousness, no. which, you know, yeah. Right. Um, so after this wonderful book, uh, which came out a couple of years ago, you are working on a few more really exciting projects. Could you tell our listeners a bit more about those? Sure. Yeah. So I've been sort of working on two projects. Um, one is, is that um, when I was writing the chapter about behavioral economics, I got kind of interested in microeconomics and um, microeconomics is basically the the mode of, um, of economic mainstream economic thought that, um, sort of comes to dominate um, the discipline as a whole in the early 20, late 19th, early 20th century. And then by the late 20th century really is the sort of primary mode of economic analysis. Um, I got really interested in that and I got interested in the fact that there didn't seem to be much of a cultural history of that transformation. So last year um, I had a grant through this amazing program called the Mellon New Directions. I always like to give it a, give it a shout out, but, um, and the, the point of that program is to allow scholars, mid-career scholars to study extensively in another discipline. So um, I got that grant and I spent um, a year and a half taking undergraduate microeconomic classes, um, which was quite an experience. Um, I had to teach myself basic calculus to do it. So it was not easy and it was, it was really challenging. Um, I, I mean, part of what I'm interested in is the fact, as I was saying at the beginning, that um, because the discipline moves so much towards math, that it becomes completely impenetrable to people without um, a pretty strong mathematical background. So um, in a way, actually, the, the exactly the problem that I was interested in, which was like what happens to the possibility for interdisciplinarity when, when that shift happens, it also posed a big challenge for me because I don't have a math background. Um, so I did that for um, for a year and a half, and I've been writing um, some work based on um, based on that research about the kind of intellectual and cultural history of this disciplinary change in the discipline where it moves from political economy um, in the 18th and 19th century to economics in the 20th. Um, so I've been writing about that, and then the other project I've been working on 
Um, the one that I think is going to be my next book is about um, contemporary work. Um, so as part of what I got interested in the fact that after the crisis of 2008, basically about 90% of the jobs that have been created since 2008 in the last decade have been in some form of contingent or temporary labor gig work. Um, so I got really interested in gig work and, and in it's the relationship between um, contemporary gig work and older forms of work like tip work that actually have been a sort of increasingly important part of the U.S. economy um, since about the 1960s, but that are not subject to federal minimum wage laws. So I got really interested in the history of um, what's called the tip credit provision, which is basically the way, I mean, any of us who ever worked a, a tip job probably know this, but that tip workers only have to be paid $2.13 an hour if they collect if they, if they collect enough of their income in tips. So what it means for the burden of, of labor costs to be shifted from employers to um, to consumers, which is essentially what happens with tip work. Um, so I just got interested in these forms of work that I think um, have a kind of similar relationship to um, wage stagnation as do as does credit, which is to say these forms of work like gig work that people do on the side to make up the difference between um, the, maybe the wages that they earn at their full-time job and, um, and the cost of living, which, I mean, particularly in a place like California, which is where I live now, um, that difference is really massive for a lot of people and sort of interested in the way that whereas in maybe 2006, you would have taken out a second mortgage on your home in 2018 or 19, maybe you start driving for Uber. Um, So Hmm. that's sort of the project I'm working on now is about the sort of um, history and the sort of cultural forms that um, come into to to sort of represent these systems of um, tip work and gig work that characterize contemporary labor. Wow, it sounds like you work on some of the most pressing issues of, you know, our time. Um, so <laughs> I really look forward to your future work. And thank you so much for being with us and talking to us about your book. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>